3: i thinking that somewhere in the universe there has to be something better than man. It has to be. The words are
4: Charlton Heston's.
2: Get out a last signal to Earth that we've landed.
4: The world he finds out in the galaxy will challenge every idea you've ever had of civilization. A planet where man is the lowest order of living things. And the superior beings are apes. They build the cities. Make the laws. The gods. And control the guns. that hunt a race of lowly, terrified humans who run wild in the jungles, are caged in the prisons, and stuffed in the
5: museums.
4: 20th Century Fox transforms the motion picture screen into... Planet of the Apes The Airbool's finest novel since Bridge on the River Plains
3: A world gone insane, an upside down civilization that could not be real Yes, a world of madness and terror Man has no understanding He can be taught a few simple tricks, nothing more He's brain, you bloody it's a But it did not end here. It ended in an episode so unpredictable, so shocking, that it made the horror which preceded it seem calm and gentle as a summer's night. Great many people worked long and hard to answer the question of what a civilization would be like where the evolutionary process has been reversed and apes were the superior species. Hundreds of technicians and the largest number of makeup artists ever assembled assisted the producers, the writers, the director, and the cast. Dr. Cornelius Roddy McDowell. Dr. Zilla, as played by Kim Hunter. Dr. Zares, is portrayed by Maurice Evans. Nova, my Linda Harrison. Now the tribunal has placed you in my custody for final disposition. you realize what that means? No. The to begin with. An experimental surgery on the speech
4: centers, on the brain. Eventually a kind of living death. Planet of the Apes, beyond your wildest dreams.
6: Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Ed Pettit. Hi, Mike. Great to be here. And making his debut to The Projection Booth is Mr. Richard Adam.
0: Mike, thank you so much for having me. I'm so scared based on everything that Chris Dashu has told me. I feel like I'm having that dream where you're showing up for the final of a class you don't recall taking. We'll we'll see if, if I can keep up with the level of the room. Sci-Fi
6: Month continues with a look at the landmark 1968 film The Planet of the Apes. This is about the movie, not the actual planet. Based on the novel by Pierre Boulle, it's the story of a quartet of astronauts who arrive on a strange planet where three species of apes, orangutans, chimpanzees, and gorillas are the ruling species while bands of mute, primitive humans hide in the forests, occasionally stealing the apes' crops and generally being a nuisance. We will be spoiling this film, its four sequels, as well as the exorable Burton remake, the laudable Matt Reeves films... All that stuff. You have been warned. So, Ed, when was the first time you saw Planet of the Apes, and what did you think?
7: It would have been on TV, but I mostly, I'm born in 67, and I most likely saw the TV series first, which was such a huge favorite of mine. But that whole franchise was so enormous for me as a kid, as a lot of people who were kids when they were coming out in the, you know, the late 60s, early 70s. Because of the scenario, just that heroic guys battling apes. I mean, just that part of it just seems so original as a child watching it. And I do remember as a kid, we used to reenact the final scene from beneath all the time. We were constantly playing Planet of the Apes with each other. And sometimes you'd be humans, sometimes you'd be apes but we would always do that scene where he's like mowing all the apes down one by one. He runs out of ammo and they kill him. And then he blows up the whole world. There's a big spoiler. And I wonder why we were so attached to that. And I started to think that I think it might be that whole, because when I grew up the whole cold war, nuclear war kind of anxiety. And I think that that, I think that that probably had a lot to do with why that, and especially beneath had such an appeal to me is that kind of apocalyptic idea in science fiction and whether they be movies or books, I think appealed a lot to me because I think that was probably a deep seated anxiety I had as a child. And then as I grew older, I, you know, I read bulls novel, i rewatched all the films, and there are just so many poignant ideas weave through them all about war man's inhumanity to man, scientific knowledge place in the universe and all that. So I still find it endlessly entertaining and interesting. One of those few products from childhood that, continues to grow for you that it's not just entertaining as it was as a kid it's also like really interesting and i can find all this stuff in it and
6: what's about yourself
0: i saw planet of the apes for the first time at nine o'clock on april 25th 1975 at my cousin's house and i remember it because it was right after i had seen my very first episode of Kohl's Shack the Night Stalker. It all happened in the same three hours. (laughs) So from eight to nine, it was the Spanish Moss Murders. And then from nine, and then it was like the ABC Friday night movie, Planet of the Apes. I think it was the first time. Well, maybe, maybe not because it was a few years later, but maybe it was, but it was a big deal. And I didn't know what it was either. And I was coming down off coal shack and, and then it's Planet of the Apes. So yeah, my, my young mind was blown to bits. I don't
6: remember the first time I saw it, but I do remember they would have the, I think it was the 4 o'clock movie here in Detroit on Channel 7, and they would do five days of particular things. So they would do five days of Godzilla films. They would do five days of, like, made-for-TV horror. So that's where I would see, like, Trilogy of Terror, speaking of Dan Curtis, and then they would do apes week and it was fantastic every day, come home and see a different apes movie. So they were just kind of like this integral part of my life. And then I did see the TV show. It's funny that there are certain episodes I remember as if I had seen them yesterday. And then there are others where I'm just like, what the hell was this? I don't remember ever seeing it, but I think it's the third episode where they're in the uh, train tunnel that kind of like say like an elevator episode of a TV show. It just, that rang so true for me, especially when they find the poster of the circus. The circus with the ape in it. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's so yeah. good. And then the, I think they do some like uh Morse code on the rails and these kind of things. I was just like, oh, this is fantastic. I don't, I didn't see the cartoon until just a few years ago. I never watched that, but the TV show I definitely remember that. I remember some hang gliding in an episode, but the movies were really where it was at for me. I just, oh, I ate those up with a spoon.
7: I just recently rewatched the the TV show last year. I think me TV was running them. So I taped them and then I can watch them on my like regular TV, just like kind of not my computer as it was a TV show and even with commercials. um, And I just felt like that was nice. But, but think about the movies too. I don't think I saw any of the original eight movies in the theater. I saw them all on TV and they would play repeatedly all the time. And That's what we got to watch them uh, so frequently as kids in the 70s. They would, you know, the TVs are buying these packages and they play these movies over and over again. And so that's where I saw them all. And I think Planet of the Apes is the only one I've seen on the big screen
6: uh, in like a reissue, you know. I don't think I've seen any of the original Five Apes movies on the big screen at all. I'm surprised that they don't bring them back to one of the local rep houses, at least the first one, and do that, because I would think that that would get a huge response.
0: I think it would. I just rewatched it today. It had been a while since I'd seen it, and Franklin Schaffner... I believe is his name. Suddenly I was struck with what a, I think a kind of great job he did. There's a lot of really physically involving camera work and a lot of vertical, a lot of up these, you know, uh, rocks and dunes and then down the rocks and dunes. And then even the, the way the production design of their village is these sort of amphitheater steps that look like really unsafe. Like you wouldn't want to make a daily practice of walking up and down these stairs. Someone's going to get hurt and twist their ankle or die if they fall. I mean, it was just like, like it was, I was shocked at how viscerally I was involved with that Charlton Eston's barefoot. He's going to get hurt.
6: I read the Rinsler book about Planet of the Apes, and once I found out who Gaudi was, I was like, oh, this his stuff looks like Planet of the Apes. And I was so glad to kind of get that confirmation after all these years of we went for that Gaudi look when it came to the ape village. That
7: gorgeous architecture. One of the the art directors, I I can't remember which one it was, had talked about how... Uh, He was also inspired by the by those kind of cliff dwelling places that some of the Native Americans lived in in the cliffs and that look of it.
0: The Anazazi, like in New Mexico. Yeah, Um, that's interesting. That totally makes sense.
6: I also like that they put smaller buildings in the back so that it looks like the, the village goes on forever. So it really is kind of like a forced perspective thing with those buildings that are in the back. So it makes it look like Ape City is much larger than it actually is.
7: Well, Richard, you were saying with, with Franklin Schaffner and, and I had not that long ago to watch The Warlord. And he's using those techniques. I mean, it's they are those epic film battle and movement techniques that he was using already and brought it to apes, which was really great that he would do that.
0: I didn't look him up, but what did he do? Like, like, did he? And I don't know because I'm you guys know this stuff much more than I do. Did he do the other apes movies? What did he do after this? Like, why don't I know his name? I guess is my question.
6: I think he was a very much a workman director and he's not one of these like really super flashy guys, but I know for sure that as you just said, and he worked with, um, Heston before, and he also worked a lot with, uh, Jerry Goldsmith too. So it was like he, Goldsmith was his go-to guy, but you'll mostly know Schaffner from Patton. He directed Patton. He did uh, Boys from Brazil. Uh, he
7: directed Papillon with, with McQueen and Hoffman, uh, Boys from Brazil. Wait, Fra- wait Franklin, Franklin yeah. Schaffner did? Yes. Oh, th- then I'm an idiot. That's a soundbite. Uh, Nicholas and Alexandra. And he did that medieval movie
0: in the 80s, Eric Stoltz, Lionheart. Okay. Well, I, I knew, I mean, I had heard that Heston sort of was instrumental in bringing him in.
7: Heston always says that whenever every movie he makes. So
0: this one I think is
7: really true. Like he really did, because he worked with him in Warlord. There was the connection. But I love yeah. how Heston's, Heston's conversations are always... And the movie got made because I said, hey, let's get this guy. I said, Orson Welles needs a direct touch of evil. And so they went out and got Orson and now we got it made. Every single film he talks about is everybody was cast because of him. Every decision in the movie was made because of him. He's hilarious.
0: There's always this part of me that wants to hate Charlton Heston. And then, and then I watch him and I'm like, he's great. I love his know? voice. It's I'm like, really good. Yeah.
6: Yeah, he is so good in this, and I want to say he was like third or fourth choice, and the original director was going to be Blake Blake Edwards. Edwards, They had sent this to Blake Edwards, and was this the movie? Because I've I've read so much this month. I'm trying to remember if this was the movie that they originally were trying to get Marlon Brando or Paul Newman for, and I think they both passed.
7: They kept sending the script or pictures or the treatment to Brando, and because he was still in Tahiti, he was doing... uh mutiny on the bounty and he passed on it you know said
6: something like i don't understand what was what you were saying like he didn't get it like at all the artwork really did a lot to sell this when they finally got around to doing that and then i know that there was controversy for years as far as who came up with the ending of it and i know that before Serling even worked on the screenplay that there were already pictures of the Statue of Liberty, spoilers, in the production drawings that they were doing. So it was always this kind of like, where did it come from? Where was that ending? I mean, it's a perfect Rod Serling ending. We don't have perfect dates for all of Serling's
7: work either. So I just i can't imagine that's not rod sir i mean the whole movie is a, is a twilight zone episode isn't it
6: it's very much that uh, i shot an arrow in the air the where they think that they're on this other planet and then it ends up being earth practical joke
3: perpetrated by mother nature and a combination of improbable events practical joke wearing the trappings of nightmare of terror of desperation small human drama played out in the usa continent of north america the Earth, and, of course, the Twilight
6: Zone. Because the original novel, the Bull novel, as I'm sure you know it, it, was set on a different planet, so it was kind of more that the Tim Burton version where it's on a different planet, and with that I mean they really scaled back production a lot because with that it was like apes driving cars, apes, you know, flying planes, apes having speaking of the architecture of Ape City, I love the idea of since they're, uh, the apes are so strong with their arms and they're so arboreal that they would have crosswalks that went above the cars so they would grab these monkey bars and go across the street that way. And they really took all that and toned it down quite a bit to make it a lot more primitive, but kind of interesting that they're at that particular place in their history when we join them in the movie.
7: The bull novel is apes have pretty much just mimicked human civilization at that point. And then the humans die out and it's very much the conquest story, the conquest movie that's in that bit that is in, in bulls novel They just plateau. They just take human society as it was and don't ever change. But for this movie, partly out of necessity, because to build the future world and do all that stuff would have been a fortune. But also, I think it it fits more in our uh, more into our ideas of of how societies evolve. Like it's going to start out as more primitive and then gradually grow. But there's also bigger questions about that.
0: I would never say I'm glad they changed anything Rod Serling wrote, but I was aware that the draft that he wrote was, I guess, closer to the novel where the society was was more advanced and then would have been more expensive to shoot. But I'm glad they didn't, because I think it sort of helped focus the themes, you know, and it's it's like, well, let's let's scrape off all of like, oh, it's just like New York City, only if it was built by apes, which would have been cool. But okay it helped us focus down just on to how do the apes feel about themselves? What do they know of their past? What are they hiding about their past? Yeah. I mean, it's everyone's point of view of where they are on the ladder is just constantly shifting back and forth. And it's, and it's so great. And I, I, I always forget this stuff, but watching it again, I'm like, you know, Dr. Zayas, as much as we hate him, They do the brilliant thing where the bad guy's not wrong.
6: In the book, Dr. Zayus kind of disappears after a while. It follows some of the same beats as far as these astronauts coming down and meeting these primitive people, getting captured. The one thing, you know, Ed, you talked about how the apes are mimicking or aping where people were at, at a certain stage and then they stopped. The idea of all of the vivisection that's going on is because of people humans being obsessed with cutting apart animals and learning more about them and so this is kind of a monkey see monkey do when it comes to why the apes are constantly grabbing humans and cutting them up and trying to learn more about them it's just this kind of we are stuck in this circle
0: when you're watching you're like oh fuck of course that's what they're gonna do you know it's like yeah that's what we would do it's like oh fuck they're they are just like us they suck
6: and once Taylor makes this speech to, for lack of a better term, Senate, he basically, Dr. Zayas just kind of leaves the story. He's still a little bit of a threat, but it's really, he's yeah. been shut down, and then Taylor just kind of goes on with his own thing with Nova.
7: The novel he's reminding us, he's behind the scenes, still kind of get power again, and then and then he does at the end, but... With the novel too, with Bull's novel, there's really not much of a plot. It's very much a science fiction novel about ideas kind of thing, and it's just and there's pages of him working out the relationship between what this all means, between you know the, the apes and and how they develop their civilization. It reminds me a lot of uh, *Gulliver's Travels*, especially the the last one, the the Hunumum Slam, the horse people. And the yahoos, and I i don't know, Bull had that in mind, but it
6: seems like it's his kind of take on that that same scenario. We just talked about 2001 A Space Odyssey, and I was talking about, you know, hey, it's coming out right at the same time. You've got these apes and makeup, and one handles it one way, one handles it another. And then I forgot that we call it 2001 A Space Odyssey, calling back to the Odyssey, and then in the book, the main character's name is Ulysses. So it's like, okay, yeah, here's another Odyssey that this character's going on. And I was also glad that they didn't deal with the framing story of Boole's novel, because that is is—it's literally a bottle in space with Ulysses' manuscript inside of it, and they pull it out and they read it, and then the big twist at the end is, these two people that were reading this whole thing are apes. And so isn't it funny that somebody put this out here as a joke, because of course humans can't talk.
7: It's a great reveal. It, and it's a twilight zone kind of ending for that, for that book too. That's, that's really wonderful. I can remember the first time reading it, um, uh, that it was a shocker and R- Richard, I don't, I don't know if you've wa- have you watched planet of the apes with your kids yet? And do they know the ending? Because I've done this with my kids, Sophie and Lou were about, uh, I think they were 10 and 12 or 8 and 10. I can't remember. They watched Planet of the Apes for the first time, did not know the end. They they had no idea that they were on Earth. And I just asked them again yesterday. I said, do you remember that? And they were like, that was so shocking. I couldn't believe that. At the, like, they were just like jaws dropped. Like, what? He's on Earth? And I do remember having explained to like, because they were looking at me like what's going on that's like where are they and i'm like yeah it's what you think it is they're on earth and they
0: couldn't believe it when my kids watch something like that you know and i haven't showed my youngest planet of the apes but my experience showing my kids movies is always just they're always just sitting there going oh that's where the simpsons joke (laughs) comes from oh that's what the family guy was doing It's hard to keep secrets from them. It's like, oh, fuck. Okay, so you know. Yeah, it's like, yeah. It's a funny joke of Homer Simpson finding all the, 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 you know, the subsequent, you know, uh, statues that have been built by all the various cultures. That's hilarious, except the kids don't know what it's making fun of to begin with. And then when they see the movie, they're like, oh, yeah.
7: Well, my daughter watched Casablanca. She Like, all through the movie, she was like, what? Oh, that line? That line? And, like, the whole movie, she was saying that. But they also my youngest two. I kept Darth Vader's uh, Luke's father secret from them. And when they first watched Empire, it was the bombshell in our house, and they were completely floored by that too. So I got lucky with the last two. You learn. We have five kids, and by the last two, you learn what to do. Like we made so few fewer mistakes. Like keep this stuff secret. Don't let them know.
0: They're locked in a basement. They're only fed through a tube, <laughs> and and every night. The lights go out and then a screen comes on and that's how you raise kids.
6: Gigantic skinner box in Ed's basement. It's that reliving.
7: Because I can't I don't really remember what that shock was like. And then I'm sure it was there. And and to get to well, not relive it, but like to re-experience it is um it's a really nice reminder of how powerful these pieces are because we so lose that shock. We have through all things like the Simpsons and all the other things, and it's so easy to lose it, and it's the only way I can think of to get it back.
6: They show the title, Planet of the Apes, at the beginning, like near the beginning, after we get this great kind of speech by Charlton Heston, which I just absolutely love when he's given his final log entry. I love the layers that Taylor character has, and just he's so great, and especially him there giving his inner thoughts, and like, oh, there's got to be something better in the universe. And then when they leave the ship, and he is such a dick to the other two astronauts <laughs> yeah really uh, pushing pushing landon's button i do think it's
7: funny when he's in space and he's like and he's like out here in space and he says it really squashes a man's ego and i'm thinking like well not charlton heston's for certainly but i guess the normal man it would squash his ego i really noticed this on this rewatch that it really makes sure that you believe this is another planet even though there's all kinds of hints all through it They really take their time, you know, to talk talk about the trip and like even something a little like planting that flag, because like you only do that in a new like if you were on a new planet. So it's it's just you're constantly hit with like this is not Earth, not Earth, not Earth. So you can have the big reveal at the end. But at the same time, they're constantly talking about
6: giving you hints that it is Earth all the way through it, that they're speaking English, that they write in English.
0: You know, it's great. I, I love that. What's what's nice is that it was made during an era where you don't question that if we land on another planet, you get out. There's water. There's air. The, the, the gravity's all the same. You know, they don't immediately burst from some weird pressure or something on that planet. It's just like, oh yeah.
7: They at least check the atmosphere though. In this, like, we're at least at that level, but not at the level where like nobody's like he's never surprised they're all speaking English and he can write English and they get it.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's all I and mean, you just you don't question. But um, but what's so great about the, what you were referring to that, that little monologue he gives at the very opening of the movie is so perfect because he's like, he's like, one last thing. Are we still, you know, do we still not care if our neighbor's kids are starving? Are we still killing our brothers? You know? And you totally, you're like, well, for, you know, a, it absolutely sounds like the first five minutes of a Twilight Zone episode. It absolutely sounds like Rod Serling. So I don't care if they say Michael Wilson rewrote every line of dialogue. It reeks of Rod Serling. all does, especially the first half hour. That dialogue and, and that sort of hepped up cynicism. Oh, by the way, he's smoking a cigar. In, in, in the space, space, space capsule. I, I love I, it.
7: I want, to be, I want to be an astronaut, but only an astronaut from the 1960s science fiction where you
6: could still do that. So, yeah.
7: Smoking in space.
0: Captain's
6: log. <laughs> well, they show... Planet of the Apes, after that monologue, Planet of the Apes, and it's like, okay, and then they take, like, almost half an hour of their journey going through the desert and all these different things, and you're right, they especially when those weird storm clouds happen, it's like, oh, okay, there's there's no way this can be Earth, we don't see this kind of stuff here, end up meeting the humans and all this stuff, and then you get that reveal of the apes on horseback. And I remember like even though the movie's called Planet of the Apes, it's like I've almost forgotten by that point what this movie is. And the first time I saw those apes on horseback, just like, what the hell is going on here? This is amazing. And just I love that indelible image of that ape face, you know, just like hunting the humans.
7: And the music, there's like this like kind of bugle like calling the Right, just when you they pan up to see
0: them. Uh, so well done. Well, at first you think the apes, because, oh, Planet of the Apes, the apes are stealing the clothes. And they're not really showing them. So you're like, oh, oh those are the apes. Yeah, you know, I guess those are the apes. And then they're not the apes. And you're like, well, what's going on? Wait, I thought that this was Planet of the Apes, but those just look like sort of cavemen, primitive, you know, sort of 1000 BC kind of people with pelts on. And then the apes show up they're the ones on horseback with guns. I mean, the with guns part is, is really chilling and, th- and that, that really nails it. And I think it actually works much better introducing the, the natives, you know, sort of the, the other people first. It's like, Oh, because it immediately tells you how they're looking. Cause it's like, Oh, well that's, that's all that, you know, Charlton Heston and the other guys are. They're just some of those dudes. In six months, we'll be running this place. And then,
6: boom, you hear that scream, that cry out, and then, God, yeah, we got to talk about the music. The music is so amazing. I grew up listening to the Goldsmith score, and then when I'm 18, 19, 20, I start listening to stuff like Bella Bartok, and I'm just like, oh, my God, this is Planet of the Apes. You know, he was so inspired by Bartok, Stravinsky, you know, other of these kind of modern composers, and I kind of hated on the audio commentary, because uh, Goldsmith does one audio commentary, and then there's another that's kind of like a bunch of people all kind of cut together. And Goldsmith is just like, well, you know, I wrote this in this 12-tone score, and I really don't want to get into all the particulars. I'm like, no,
0: no, no. Well, give me all that's the ridiculous. particulars. That's I want to know everything for. about this. Please, right, right. <laughs> Please so, tell when, me. When when are you going to get into the particulars? Because I'll show up at that point. But why not? Tell me more about how you
6: used mixing bowls and stuff to do that. Beep, 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 you know. And, like, tell me how you did, like, all of these different weird instrumentations, all the different types of percussion instruments that you're using. Tell me about how you used an actual ram's horn, a shofar, to, to do
0: those some of those calls. You know, this is fantastic. The feeling of it was so primitive and so anxiety inducing this was a bit like i again just watching it again today i'm like this is upsetting like this is this they're doing an excellent job through everything of really making this a physically uncomfortable movie to watch i mean it really is it's just like just the, the physical humiliation and and the, the, the unexpected sort of like nudity and stuff that stuff that really like just when you want to be above the movie and sort of go okay these people are fucking wearing monkey makeup you it, it is a very visceral movie it, it it hits you on that level music on down i mean it's 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 very impressive
7: and it's a mainstream film it's a big budget Fox is really invested it in. And, and I mean, just that goldsmith score for a, for a mainstream film release. I don't know of any film that is that experimental before that. Like, I can't think of one, but, uh, granted it's, it's by 1968. There's, there's far less, you know, pressure to be, you know, uh, to be so reticent in, in putting new ideas or new things out there. But still, I, I think it's, 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 Clearly, one of the first, or at least if there's any before, it, there's few and far between, but it's very adventurous. And and you're right, that whole disorientation. I'm surprised the studio execs didn't watch it and they be like, no, 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 reshoot, cut all that, make people feel good.
0: I mean, they, I mean, they they put the woman in his cage. It's clear, like they don't say it, but it's like, okay, well, they're gonna mate like fucking pandas or something, and then they're talking about gelding him, and you're like just fuck what the fuck is this but of course it has that again like the twilight zone it's like oh but it's science fiction that's their get getting a
7: jail card though i guess right it's like yeah. it, it even though it's like it's a big flagship film that you're releasing as a mainstream push you can still say well it's science fiction
0: right so we can you know they can talk about it right
7: there. they didn't do it with kubrick what's the studio with kubrick they didn't do it with 2001 That's like gorgeous symphony music all through it and you know as adventurous and as bizarre as it is they're not doing something like creating this this new
6: weird modernist score for it I mean, the closest I think you get is the Ligeti and the the the, um, also Sprox Zarathustra as well from Strauss. Those moments of the whenever they show the monolith, you get that Mm -hmm. kind of thing going on. That's very anxiety inducing. But I drove around once with the Planet of the Apes score on and I was just like driving like a madman. I'm just like, whoa, you know, because it gets you so hyped up and stuff. And I'm just like, I had to turn it off because it
0: was just too much, too intense. Yeah, no, you're gonna have a, you're gonna have a car accident. <laughs> little to music.
6: Apparently, Goldsmith didn't write as much music as Schaffner wanted him to write because there are mo- many times in the film where there's just no music, and Goldsmith's like, "No, no, that that's the score." As there's no music at this point, the, consider us resting during Including this point.
7: the end, and and to totally to totally jump the gun, and we'll just like that where there's no music for the end. It's just the sound of waves
6: it's like time and tide waits for no man.
7: What what I think it's, it's the Shakespeare sonnet. Um, I can't remember which one it was. Um, uh, uh, one of the sonnets on the passage of time, like as the waves make toward the pebbled shore. So do our minutes hasten to their end, each changing place with that, which goes before in sequent toil, all forwards do contend. And there there's a rhythm in that, that that's also this kind of wave rhythm coming in, to the shore that things end. that's a creepy final credit
0: it really is and it's funny that ed said that because i was going to quote that exact that same thing. sonnet yeah oh, I know. it's on the tip, tip, tip of my tongue but you know but you you got it i think i think you got it right but yeah what a fucking bold move not to have some big sweeping score to, to completely obliterate i mean it, it was or even this
6: brilliant music you had this brilliant yeah. music created for the film and you're not using it at the end
0: yeah. And then it just goes, yeah, all the way into the credits.
6: Think about the time that the music swells the most. The, The music swells the most after he gives that incredible.
3: Take your sticking
6: paws off me, you damn dirty ape. And it's like, welcome to part two of the film you know i i love that like I, one hour
7: in i noticed the time on the film and and that was exactly where it was well paced i mean really well paced. i'm mean, richard i a am as a screenwriter and, and 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 knowing these things better than me i mean the pacing of this film i thought was i'm surprised how much they were putting in and and keeping the momentum going
6: well it's like you could get to that tribunal scene, and the whole movie could die, because that tribunal takes a long time, and there are many points to it where it's like, okay, well, you're talking about this other guy. Well, we gathered all of the people that we caught from the hunt. Let's take you outside and then have that beat and then that reveal and then bring them back inside and have that and then have the separate thing after the tribunal is dismissed and it's just him and Zeus having their thing. I mean, it's just such a nice, tight sequence of events.
0: It's really well done. I kept wishing, like, in my mind, again, not having, like, a minute-to-minute recollection of everything. I'm like, you know, when he's in front of that assembly, you know, that's when you want him in his fucking loincloth to just go, "Gentlemen of the assembly. I appeal to you now. Like, you want him to Which suddenly What he does In, the book. Smart, in, in right? Bull's book, he that does happens. In the book. That's oh, he does. exactly okay. what happens in Bull's okay. book. Because you're like, well, okay, th- th- this guy knows enough. but then, But then I'm like and of course it doesn't go that way and then they take him out to see his friend who's been lobotomized after they strip him down too they take off the loincloth because he's well he's an animal he's not an ape so why bother and he stinks and and i'm like oh just do that. And then, and then of course he doesn't and then when he sees his friend then he goes crazy again you bastards you know or whatever and he attacks them and i'm simultaneously thinking oh that's not very smart of you but i'm like oh because but you buy it in the moment and certainly in the era because it's it's human passion and emotion and then later they comment on it they're like you're ruled by emotion you know you're not ruled by reason you know you you're a you're a bloodthirsty breed and and you can't be tamed and and it's so great it's so great because as a viewer and especially in 1968 you're like Oh, you're not wrong, you know, it's like, I wish I could argue with Dr. Zayas, but once again, he's pretty much got us pegged. And you're just like, yeah, you know what? Yeah. You know, you're not, you, you apes aren't off the hook either because you're clearly, I mean, it's like, okay, well, we're just going to bury this part of our history. And, you know, and, and it's so horrible. I mean, it's like monstrous until he says, until he tells little Lucius, who I love, by the way, yippee, would be beating a kid ape hey man i mean literally the fact that he didn't say groovy i was shocked (laughs) but but when he's like you know i don't understand why are you doing this and he's like i may have just saved your future i may have
7: just saved it for you and it's just
0: like what what the fuck are you talking about and then one and a half minutes later you know what he's talking about
7: i I think that winds up being such a big question because especially this rewatch this time i'm thinking has he and i'm thinking because it's almost like the frankenstein warning that he's giving Except in this case, the Frankenstein warning has completely come true. Our pursuit of knowledge, if the movie is making the statement about human, the way humans destroy themselves, and it is, and that's that's what we do, then can the answer be that we shouldn't expand our knowledge and abilities, especially when the when every time we develop a new technology, the first thing that we do is weaponize it
6: or use it for porn.
7: You know, is as right. You know, I mean, think, think about nuclear technology. They, they figure out how to split the atom. They could have figured out the energy side of that and how to power the whole world safely and forever. And to do that, instead, the first thought was, "How do we build a bomb out of this?" Then we'll worry about energy. After that, I, I think this also gets at more what's going on in Pierre Boulle's novel, which is interesting because his idea in that book is that. All civilizations just eventually, Peter, like, you know, like we, we won't we won't necessarily blow ourselves up, but because that's a very Cold War anxiety that I think is is about this movie. But the idea that all civilizations tend towards atrophy and will die out and other creatures will just eventually take over. But this is more dangerous because what Zaya says is that, no, what's going to happen is that, you know, humans will come along and they'll blow it all up
6: again. Maybe he's uh, like you were saying earlier, Richard. Maybe Zeus is right. Well, he kind of is, according to Battle Four.
0: You can only judge him in the moment. We're watching from a very exalted viewpoint. We're out. Well, well, and 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 again, and I I've said it three times. I'll say it four times. We're a story like this allows us to be exalted toward the material, and it allows us to be arms distance and sort of go. Oh, I see what they're doing here, and they even. I mean, it's and I look, I love this stuff, but in the middle of the movie, it becomes inherit the wind. I mean, suddenly they're doing the scopes monkey trial, you know, it's about evolution and oh, we didn't evolve Dude, from I wrote these, inherit the know, wind oh, trial no. in my notes here Inherit the wind trial. Check that, you know, and then you've got the the preacher talking about, you know, doing the funeral and I never met an ape. I didn't like, and I'm sorry. That's fantastic. But they do all this stuff, and we're kind of watching. And and again, I mean, I'd give anything to a- address the question to 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 Franklin Schaffner. But it's like knowing that you had to keep it visceral, and you had to like every moment. I'm worried about someone breaking their ankle. <laughs> you know, it's like all of those questions but never stop worrying about why do they keep putting that fucking thing around his neck? It's literally going to kill him. He's going to break his neck. There is physical danger and, and fear in every single minute of this movie.
6: This was a year and a half before it came out a year and a half before the Chicago seven trial where they took Bobby seal and basically shackled him and put a muzzle on this guy in court and it's just like the exact same thing that they're doing to Taylor here by muzzling him and just taking away his his power. I don't think I'm too out of line, yeah. You know, we we definitely are talking about critiquing humanity overall, but then to look at Taylor being an African American in white American society where he's getting fire hosed, where he's getting shut down, where he's getting muzzled in court. He can't get a day in court. It's all turned against him. Everything is unfair to the human race, to Taylor. I'm just like, wow. And especially when we get into like conquest for the planet of the apes, I mean, that is major. Racial charge in there, but I definitely see it here, especially too, because what's the first thing they want to do with Taylor? They want to geld him, and then even when he escapes gelding, when Zayus talks to him later, he's like, "Oh, first thing is emasculation, and then, uh, and then I'll do some brain surgery. It'll basically be a living death." And I'm like. Okay, great. So this is like controlling the black man's power, controlling the sex, being afraid of him breeding. And that was such a thing, like why they wanted to guilt Taylor was they didn't want him breeding and passing along his ability to talk to anybody else. And I think for a long time, I don't know when they finally cut it out, but Nova was supposed to be revealed as pregnant towards the end.
7: And they filmed it. They filmed scenes where He discovers she's pregnant. This is like after this is like before the end, the final march along the shore that and they said, yeah, that's pushing it. Really? Like, I can't believe that they thought that was pushing the envelope uh, that he would have actually impregnated this like primitive woman. Like the sexual politics of this film are the one thing that really don't stand up. Like they brought along a female astronaut, apparently only so they could all have sex with her wherever they're eventually going. Wouldn't it make more sense to bring along three
0: female astronauts? Yeah, three females and one guy would have been better. But that would would be crazy. I mean, the fact that we even found one female astronaut is, like, amazing.
6: Those dizzy dames can't handle airplanes, much less a spaceship. For all of
7: Charlton Heston's, you know, in later life, his connection with conservative causes, to see him involved in the science fiction films that he did, and this begins his science fiction run, all seem to have these kind of very, you know, uh, uh, liberal politics, you know, for lack of a better term, and and this one especially. I mean, he's in space with you know a black astronaut and and a female astronaut, and and he seems to be on the side of Lucius and the young people, even though he shaves his beard because only young people, you know, have beards. Even then, he's he's still kind of like don't and don't trust anybody over thirty. You know, like he's talking like a countercultural guy of the moment. Um, but one of the wonderful things about this movie is that how many eras it's kind of portraying, it's portraying its own era, this late 60s countercultural movement, but Michael Wilson, especially who's were, who's kind of either writing a new script or revising Rod Serling's, I think is is more, you know, it was tells some more story was a blacklisted writer, Michael Wilson and Carl Foreman wrote the script for bridge on the river Kwai, Peter bull's earlier book. And, They won an Oscar, except their name wasn't on the film because they were blacklisted and Pierre Bull's name was on as the writer of the of of the script of the screenplay. And Michael Wilson can now come back into Hollywood in the 60s and, and write again. And that trial scene, it's Inherit the Wind. It's also HUAC trials, you know, especially when Zaya says, like, where is where is your tribe? And and he's trying to figure out, like, where are your other people who are going to infiltrate and destroy us like communists would do. And then the whole racism angle comes in that kind of white anxiety about blacks might take over the world. I mean, White culture has always racistly linked blacks with apes. I mean, you know, King Kong is is the same kind of white anxiety about African American males taking white women, and Planet of the Apes, the whole series, really develops this racial line. Uh, uh, this uh, how we the racial politics of America, especially through and it really culminating in conquest, especially. But I, I started with that. Uh, this is like a mix of all these different not just ideas and issues, but if you think about Michael Wilson, like going back to, you know, the communist witch hunts of the fifties and counterculture at the same time, these different things, it's, it's wonderful to see all this stuff bubbling in this movie.
0: Well, and then, and then add in the sort of Galileo kind of like, well, the scientists are like, we found something here. Let's, let's not worry the impact it's going to have on society. Let's Figure out the truth of where this person came from and all that, and of course the council is like, "No, that's not a good idea. Things are things are okay right now. Let's just." Zeus knows the whole time. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. well, that's what's so great because then the scene with when when it's just the two of them. Then it's just like two men talking. He's like, well, of course I know that you know you're probably telling the truth and it doesn't really matter. And here have some cognac. He's suddenly doctor no. Zaius is smoking his cigarette on the on the on the holder. <laughs> two men discussing the way things must be, you know, and, and, and it's just it's so great because because the thing is you don't hate Dr. Zayas. I love you, Dr. Zaius. You hate him in moments. But you universally, you don't hate that guy. You're like, okay, so he's not just a moron. He gets it. He just has a job to do, (laughs) you know? And you sort of get it. And he approaches it so sort of like, well, you know... (laughs) Of course, I have a society to keep running and you're a problem. So, of course, we're going to have you gelded. And if you admit things, I could probably put you in a zoo. So make your decision. You know, again, we're just two gentlemen having a conversation.
7: But it's also the lore of that fascist society, that kind of, you know, dictator society, like the trains will run on time, you know, and it's a society that that will never grow. It's a society that will never, you know, um, be able to adapt and, and do greater things. The way Zayas wants to run as a society, they'll never flourish. Like they can't
0: flourish. Yes. And that's why, and again, God bless Rod Serling, it was a great idea to to bring their society down to the point where they don't even know about airplanes or why you'd want airplanes. Because then it gives us that. It gives us that oh, okay, so they're only going to get to this point. Like, they will never go really another inch. They're there. Wherever they are right now, they're there.
6: And I hate to be the atheist in the room, but I think a lot of it is because uh Zaius is both the chief scientist and okay. the keeper of the faith, and they keep bringing up you know how long ago was it that those lawgiver scrolls were don't forget about this piece of uh wisdom that is inside of the scrolls, and you know, oh, of course they kept man as pet, and just kind of like reinterpreting the scriptures to fit whatever Zayus wants it to fit, and I'm just like that never happens. <laughs>
0: And and if for some reason, it makes us like Zaius more that he's a little bit cynical about even his own philosophy. He's like, look, this is how it is. <laughs> you know, I'm not a zealot. This is how it is. And this is better. And and, he, and again, he's not wrong.
7: I have always known about man from the evidence. I believe his wisdom must walk hand in hand with his idiocy. Like, like yes, you get like it is like it, that's that's what humans are like. And then, then then, his kicker is what? The, the Forbidden Zone was once a paradise.
3: Your breed made a desert of it ages ago. It still doesn't give me the why. A planet where apes evolved from men? There's got to be an answer. Don't look for it, Taylor. You may not like what you find.
0: All the clues are there. It's all there. That's, I mean, it really is just very well done.
6: I was rewatching it last night, paying particular attention to Roddy McDowell and his physical acting. I just absolutely love the way that the actors have to work through the makeup. But I think especially Roddy McDowell does such a great job with the the way that he walks and he's kind of got this hunch to him. I think that he actually asked for a hunch to be sewn into his yeah. costume to kind of keep him over, to see the way that he uses his hands, to see when he's opening his mouth, when he's not opening his mouth, and just to see how expressive that makeup is as they're you know, emoting through this. And it it's just fantastic to see that. And just, Oh God, Kim Hunter, she acts with her eyes so mm-hmm. well, just it's such great performances through this makeup.
0: Early on, there's one moment where I forget exactly what prompts it, but Cornelius rolls his eyes and it's just, it's just like, Oh, okay. I'm with this guy. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's the most human thing you can do is like, Oh, Please. <laughs> And then you realize it's all here. It's all here.
7: Kim Hunter talked about how difficult it was because what they had to do is they had to like so overact facially, like their expressions. They had to like, really move their face around and, and do things that they normally would look ridiculous if they weren't wearing makeup, if they were doing in order to get these effects. And one of the, there's a documentary on the, on the special effects that I watched was talking about how Roddy McDowell's secret was they. They, they hollowed out more of the inside of his appliances. And so it was thinner. So it would react more to his face moving. And that was his secret to getting good expressions on, you know, crinkling his nose and making those faces. So and he kept that a secret. Like he didn't want other actors to be able to do it in their ape makeup.
6: He, he only uh, it was the guy that he plays told, his he son. Told the one
7: that plays the son. He's the only one he told. You don't want anybody else to be able to do that.
6: What a treasure Roddy McDowell is, too, as far as like him always taking photographs and Super 8 footage yeah. of all the movies that he was on. I mean, his archives are, I've only seen like little bits of, of certain other movies, but his footage from Planet of the Apes is just invaluable. It's amazing that they, uh, that he did that and that he was able to, you know, we can still see that today.
7: What surprised me is because he's so involved in the franchise for so long. He did, was it all but one movie that he did? I can't remember. did yeah I think it was just uh beneath because he does all the others he's so involved. I just assume, and the t v series where he's Galen, I just assume it's like him and Taylor and but like they're, but actually, it's not it's really about Zera and Taylor, and Cornelius through the whole thing is super skeptical, even to the very end, he's still not quite accepting of Taylor as you know as an equal being. Like Zira is, but the the the, the kind of gets forgotten because of his long involvement in it. Um, and it's a really good role that he that he keeps that skepticism to the end, and of course hisses when he kisses Zira. So that little bit of interspecies romance there, which is right at Bull too. Bull talks about the whole through the whole novel about this weird thing that Taylor goes through where the apes like he he doesn't see them as apes anymore, and. And he goes to kiss Zira at the end of the novel, went to say goodbye. And she reacts by pulling back and saying, I'm engaged.
6: So. (laughs) It's not miscegenation. It's that she's engaged. Yeah. look, dudes are dudes. Yeah. We'll definitely talk more about that when we talk about Burton's uh, version of it. Cause my God.
7: But Taylor's right away. Like as soon as he's getting rescued, he's like, I'm taking the woman. And she even at one point after they're out, after they've escaped, she like wants to go off and join her tribe. And he says, no, 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 that's not safe. And he physically restrains her. And this is part of the sexual pop. This is the this is that male hero, especially, you know, it's the James Bond kind of like I'm going to I'm going to show the woman how she needs to behave. But she's also his trophy. You know, he gets to keep the woman the really hot you know, native woman. Cause come on, they wouldn't have been that hot if they were like, you know, living like animals.
6: Yeah. Her makeup's very well done. Her hair is always perfect. <laughs> and I think that's right after he immediately goes, as soon as he's free, he's just like, okay, you got any guns proving Zayas's point, right? Like he's the one
7: killing people at the end and takes control immediately. As soon as he can, he gets a gun. he's like,
6: now I'm in control because I have the gun. And you talked about that gut punch of an ending. I mean, it is just so perfect. And, I mean, we could say Charlton Heston's going a little bit over the top at the end, but I think it's perfect. I think this man who found out that he's on this planet the whole time and that his whole civilization blew itself up – I think it's the perfect way to end the film. And I just buy him there in the surf and just pounding and screaming and just calling for all the powers that be to damn these people to hell.
7: What a fun film. What's the last line? God damn you all to hell. And after I show my my young kids, I'm thinking like, hmm, that's the last line of this film. Like, I, I guess it is a very cynical, apocalyptic kind of film. Alright, kids, now let's go play the board game. The only
4: danger is if they send us to that terrible planet of the apes. Wait a minute, Statue of Liberty. That was our planet! You maniacs! You blew it up! Damn you!
2: Damn you all to hell! <laughs> The only good human is a dead
3: human! The bizarre world you met on the planet of the apes was just the beginning. What lies beneath may be the end. 20th Century Fox takes you beneath the planet of the Apes. This is the year 3955 A.D. The Apes are building a war machine aimed at planet domination. Superhuman mutants strike back with new and terrifying weapons of the mind. In the atomic rubble of what was once the city of New York, civilization's final battle is about to begin.
2: The only one is a curcumin!
3: Beneath the planet of the Apes, with James Franciscus, Kim Hunter, Maurice Evans, Linda Harrison, and Charlton Heston, can a world long endure half ape, half man? The answer lies deep
6: beneath the planet of the apes. In color, rated G, general audiences. So, Ed, it sounds like you're a fan of the second movie. I can't say I'm a fan of Beneath the Planet of the Apes.
7: I think Beneath was, was for especially growing up, I think it was my favorite. It was, And especially because it does all those weird things, like you get to go and, and see what happened to the civilization. I always did recognize, I always thought it was weird that Heston wasn't in it, that Taylor's not in it again until the end. And I know the real stories now where Heston was like, I'm not doing a sequel. All right, I'll do a sequel, but I'm going to go and appear in like five minutes at the end um, to come in as a hero and, and do it all because that's the ego driven, crazy guy he was. I also thought it was weird that when I was a kid, I think at one point I did not know that James Francis. I didn't know that that wasn't and Heston. I think when I first watched, like, and they really do look alike. And I think as a child, you're fooled into thinking, "Oh, that's the same guy." And I think there may have been a moment at one point in my childhood when, it, when it all kind of came together at the end, I'm like, "Oh, they're different guys." Like, I guess because they're fighting at the end, obviously. But it was very confusing as a child because he looked so much like him. I think it's perfect. I, I think it's perfect in the way it takes all those awful, cynical <laughs> views of human civilization and apocalypse. And it's like, you thought goddamn you all to hell was like an ending. Like, we're really going to blow up everything. I didn't see any movies like that. I'm watching Kurt Russell and the computer wore tennis shoes. And then I get this. It's like, whoa. I, it was as a kid. And because I could watch it because my parents were like, oh yeah, it's a silly plan of the ace movie. You can watch that. So I was allowed to watch it. And it was just brutally cynical, depressing, apocalyptic. So that I think that's the appeal. And no, I think even in rewatches, it's, I think it still holds up. I, I think the. The religion, like the religion around the. That's so clever, Um, at least for me. I don't know. Why do you not like it as much?
6: I guess it's the pacing, I always felt a little weird. I always, I mean, I like a lot of the actors that are in it. I really like when James Gregory comes in as Ursus. I like that it's a little bit more about the gorillas. I, you know, I love Jeff Corey. I love Don Pedro Collie. I love Victor Buono. So it's. It's nice to have them in there. I don't know what it is about that particular one, but I'm just like, maybe it's the James Franciscus thing where it's just like, ah, oh, I really would rather see Taylor than this guy. And it's like, can't, <laughs> can't, can't any astronaut land a plane? Do they all have to crash. <laughs> but I mean, it was for me, I was like, okay, I can skip Tuesday. I need to see Wednesday though. Cause I love Escape from the Planet of the Apes. But yeah, beneath, I just... I mean, I did like the, the whole idea of them rolling up their faces and all the mutation and stuff, but it wasn't nearly as big of a reveal, I guess, as as the first movie.
7: I think as a little kid, it was a big reveal for me. I was like,
0: oh, my God. <laughs> it, it's funny how you say, you, you know, you can miss Tuesday, but not Wednesday, because what characterized our childhood, certainly Ed and I, because, Mike, you're so young. Was, was the inaccessibility of anything you liked. I mean, if you, if the, even if there was a show you liked, like if you, the Twilight Zone, if you, if you liked the Twilight Zone and you had a particular episode you really liked, I, I mean, it could be a long time before you happened to catch that episode again. And so it lived in your memory as this, as this weird dreamlike thing. But the thing about Planet of the Apes was it was bizarrely accessible. It was around like they did show those movies a lot. I never felt like it was like it was almost like Wizard of Oz. It's like, OK, it's it's in pretty regular rotation. Yeah. Almost like, like Christmas specials. It's like, well, I know, all, you know, every December you try to catch those, you know.
7: Oh, I, I think every year it was on TV on on some UHF channel for me. For me, it was the Planet of the Apes movies and the, and the Eastwood Spaghetti Westerns were on all the time. Like every year I could wind up watching those films because, you know, they were going to be on in syndication.
0: Yeah. I didn't, I was, for whatever reason, I didn't watch the spaghetti Westerns. Then I didn't see those until college, but yeah. So let's see of the five movies. uh, Tuesday was not your favorite. You liked Wednesday, Monday, of course the best. And then, uh, then yet Thursday and Friday. I love Thursday,
6: but Friday, I, missed Friday as well. I was just, I don't know. When I was growing up, I think I liked Battle for the Planet of the Apes more. But as I grew up, I really started to enjoy Escape and Conquest quite a bit. And the thing I loved about Escape, other than local news anchor Bill Bond showing up in it, is that we have the reveal at the beginning. We have the astronauts coming Down at the beginning, and I also really like that they basically lay out the whole next movie in the third movie. It's just like, oh, yeah, well, and this is what happened, and then we get all of that happening in Conquest.
3: Chimpanzee, practices in medicine, name Baby Philo, infant chimpanzee.
5: Can destroy
3: mankind. they come from an incredible planet of apes they survived a war beneath the planet of apes now it's birth 1973 and you're in for a surprise are they friendly visitors or invaders from the future why does the president's advisor want them shot what is baby milo's incredible secret All the surprising answers are an escape from the planet of the apes. All new from 20th century Fox rated geologists escape from the planet of the apes.
7: I I think there's a reputation that there's diminishing returns. And I don't believe that conquest kind of peaks again and then battle is, is okay. But escape really holds up better for me now. And, And also I think because they've done with escape, like they've gone back to the bull novel and they've just kind of reversed the situation where instead of Taylor, it's the apes now in this modern society and and they play they're doing all that same kind of stuff going on. And I love that there's a great little Easter egg in that in well and when you watch Planet of the Apes now, it's in the very beginning of Planet of the Apes, Taylor talks about the he's talking about the whole time rules and the lights Light, mm-hmm. and it's Dr. Hasline's theory of time, Dr. Otto Hasline. Who is then in this game Plan of the Apes? He's there, Eric Braden you know, plays them as the evil physicist scientist is actually the Dr. Hass line that Taylor was talking about now. And those little things that they get to keep doing as they develop this property, keep going back to the Bull novel, keep developing some kind of little pieces that they've had from other films. I like how this franchise, uh, this franchise approached that to, to to tease out these little details as they went along. Conquest is brutal, especially with the original ending. 1981, a virus from space kills all dogs and cats on the earth.
3: 1985, chimpanzees and gorillas are adopted as pets. The pets evolved into slaves, beaten and tortured victims of mankind. And now, a chimpanzee rises to give the word for the revolt
2: of the apes. My people will plot for the inevitable day of man's downfall. And that day is- Upon you now!
3: Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. It's all new, the biggest and most exciting ape picture yet, as a world of apes battles for domination of planet Earth. The Conquest of the Planet of the Apes from 20th Century Fox, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. The most awesome spectacle in the annals
6: of science fiction. I only saw the original ending for the first time a few weeks ago cuz I grew up on the way that we saw it, when we saw it. I don't know if theatrically, I think theatrically, but mostly when we saw it on TV, that whole idea of no you can't do this. Basically actually it's one of the the apes says no, the female ape that is like Caesar's girlfriend kind of thing says no and then you get that and it it was probably maybe ten years ago or so, maybe a little bit more than that, when I finally noticed how awful that ending was, the way that they cut to that close-up of Roddy McDowell's eyes. No, 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 no.
2: But now... Now we will put away our hatred. Now we will put down our weapons. We have passed through the night of the fires. And those who were our masters are now our servants. And we who are not human can afford to be humane. Destiny is the will of God. And if it is man's destiny to be dominated, it is God's will that he be dominated with compassion and understanding. So, cast out your vengeance. Tonight, we have seen... The birth of the planet of the
6: <laughs> Yeah, and then when I watched it with the original ending that they intended, holy fuck.
1: Caesar, this is not how it was to be! <laughs>
2: Prolongs hate, hate, prolongs violence. By what right are you spilling blood? By the slave's right to punish his persecutors. Caesar, I, a descendant of slaves, am asking you to show humanity. But I was not born human. I know. The child of the evolved apes. Whose children shall rule the earth. For better or for worse, Do you think it could be worse? Do you think this riot will win freedom for all your kind? By tomorrow... By tomorrow it will be too late. Why, a tiny, mindless insect like the Emperor Moth can communicate with another over a distance of 80 miles. An Emperor Ape might do slightly better. Slightly? What you have seen here today... Apes on the five continents will be imitating tomorrow. With knives against guns, with kerosene cans against flamethrowers. Where there is fire, there is smoke. <laughs> In that smoke from this day forward, my people will crouch and conspire and plot and plan for the inevitable day of man's downfall, the day when he finally and self-destructively turns his weapons against his own kind, the day of the writing in the sky, when your cities lie buried under radioactive rubble, when the sea is a dead sea and the land is a wasteland out of which I will lead my people from their captivity. And we shall build our own cities in which there will be no place for humans except to serve our ends. And we shall found our own armies, our own religion, our own dynasty. And that day is upon you now.
7: But the whole movie is, that whole movie is like there's blood in it. Then like... There's so much violence in it, and it was just shocking for you know this franchise that had been trying to bill itself as a kid-friendly thing to just go that rough with it. But but it fits, and it so fits with with teasing out all these idea of racism in American society and how that was all playing out.
6: I mean, they were taking a sledgehammer to that, to the point of them saying to the one African-American character, you, above all people, should know our struggle. And it's just like, wow, OK. And this is what, 1973 that the movie's coming out? I mean,
7: who's not on their side? Who's not on the ape side in Conquest of the Planet of the Apes And and
0: the white guys? <laughs> yeah. So for a guy who has not seen it for a long time and barely remembers it. But but in calling out this sort of shift, who wrote it, who directed it, and and what do you attribute the shift to?
6: As far as, like, why they changed the ending, or why they made this... this...
0: Well, just, just just sort of like like with the blood, and with, you know, sort of just getting a little bit more visceral. I mean, even heading more into the teeth of the central metaphor.
6: Well, I know Paul Dane, or D-E-H-N, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, he wrote both escape and conquest so he basically like gave himself his own outline for conquest when he wrote escape and then uh it was don taylor doing the direction for escape and there was jaylee thompson doing he also did uh battle four so there was a little bit of continuity between the writer of three and four and then the director of four and five
7: but there's continuity in that the studio is is it's one of the weird things is that like as the studio system is gone, really, in the 70s, that there is still the studio control over this property. And they are kind of making sure that it kind of develops along some kind of lines. But they do let it get a little out of hand with Conquest. And they kind of they let it go a little too far with the violence. And then even the last one's called Battle the Planet of the Apes. It's very cartoonish in its violence, and it doesn't have the same visceral effect.
4: Now comes the final chapter in the most remarkable science fiction series of our time. Battle for the Planet of the Apes. The final chapter in the Incredible Apes saga. As two civilizations battle for the right to inherit what's left of the Earth. Battle for the Planet of the Apes. From 20th Century Fox, rated G.
7: Why it was a favorite for me as a kid was all the apes pretending they were dead, and then Caesar saying, "Now get up and fight like apes," and they all get up, and it was like, (laughs) like it was an exciting moment in the film. It doesn't really hold up; it's pretty silly. But as a child, I really identified with that that kind of that that moment in there. That's one. That's the one that doesn't hold up for me. Is battle. I'll only watch it like once a year instead of, you know, five times a year like I watch the others.
6: It's got everything going for it, though. It's got Paul Williams as Virgil, right? And then it's got John Houston as the lawgiver, bookending the story. It's got that. It's got Severin Darden, who is also in the fourth movie coming back, I think playing the same character. And it's just like, okay, this is great. Roddy McDowell,
7: you know, and Caesar now getting to play now his son.
0: Severin Darden, who played the sleep research expert in the Spanish Moss Murders episode of The Night Stalker.
1: Whoa! There you go! It
6: all comes back around. And Claude Akins. Claude Akins is... I love Claude Akins. Claude Akins is so good. It has a real Shakespeare feel to it, with the whole idea of like the son and the father and all these kind of things. It just feels like the, the relationships and the way that they... Kind of um, brainwash him a little bit. I mean, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I feel like a lot of those seeds that were planted there ended up coming back in War for the Planet of the Apes. But I think that they handled it way better in War for the Planet of the Apes than they did in battle for because i i agree with you it's very very cartoony the way that they're fighting the mutants which i didn't realize that they call them mutants in my mind they were always the mole men It's just like whatever reason these guys always reminded me of mole men so i'm just like oh then now they have a new breed that they're fighting against this is weird
7: but they at least really take their time and it ends up being it's capped it's like okay this ends and now there's going to be a period of time and then we get the planet of the apes They really take their time to make sure it all ties together um, and franchises frequently, you know, ignored, especially as time goes on. Like, let's just do whatever we want. And they really made sure that at least it's it's continuous and and this is the end. And um, and they realized that was it for them. And then is the TV show right after
6: then? And then, yeah, the TV show and then the cartoon is right after that. I think the TV show only lasted one season. I think the cartoon only lasted one season as well. The TV show was crushing for me when it was canceled. I couldn't believe it.
7: Like, how could they cancel the greatest TV show ever made? And I've since watched it. And I said the same thing when Battlestar Galactica got canceled. It's like, come on. It's like, you rewatch it. It's like, well, I know why it got canceled. Uh, I know why people weren't watching it. But it's odd that they decided to go a different direction with the TV series when they had put so much care into the franchise for the movies. And I know it's different people making the decisions and, and they want to do it for TV, but everybody can all the humans can speak and it's basically just a western um
6: except there's apes now kind of reminded me of like a route 66 with like the guys going around to different villages and fixing problems for people
7: for me it was a western like i really and i, and I watched a lot of westerns like i watched Gunsmoke. i had a Gunsmoke lunchbox and you know like i was still because into the 70s the westerns were still they were dying out but they were still on tv and i watched the lone ranger every day and it had a lot of those Western conventions for me as well.
0: I mean, think about that for a second. The, the genres that survive on TV and when they survive. I mean, Westerns and so many of them and Gunsmoke going on for decades. And that was just accepted. And now, like, a Western is an anomaly. But back then, anything science fiction was... Star Trek went one season. Planet of the Apes went one season. Star Trek went went three Polshak went one season. It was always that sort of weird cul de sac ghetto of like, yeah, it's there, but that's that weird sh-. like like there really wasn't a place for, for genre to flourish.
7: Not with so few channels. Well, well, well crime, you know, crime TV still, the mysteries do, but that's the only one that that exists on TV forever.
0: The takeaway, like if you spoke to a a, a network executive at ABC in 1980, they would say. People, and especially Americans, don't give a shit about fantasy and vampires and science fiction. And all, and it's like, but at the movies, they do. And I don't understand. And now it's like, no, they always did. And they still do. I mean, these are the most enduring, compelling things that go on and on in Game of Thrones and all this stuff. But it was, it wasn't there, so it wasn't consumed. And it wasn't consumed because it wasn't there and it proved itself. And that was that
7: regular network tv
0: still does it regular network tv man
7: for all the like now there's a gazillion supernatural monster sci-fi shows so many i can't watch them all but network tv is still so inundated with law legal hospital cop crime shows and in spite of the fact that like every now and then you get like a grim like, and, but even that, that what's the last three seasons,
0: you know, so. Well, and Gr- Grim, and structurally Grim was a crime show. I mean, it was a crime show. So, so you sort of, it was sort of touching on that thing. But what's interesting is that, is that if you, you know, if you look behind the curtain at Amazon, I had a meeting there a few years back uh, when the, when the show Transparent, remember that was sort of, it was like, wow, Jeffrey Tambor is playing this, you know, this transsexual and. And and it was like winning Emmys. And it was like, oh, my God, you've got to watch Transparent. And I had this meeting and I'm like and I said something to the person there like, well, you know, I well, obviously you know, I know your biggest hit is Transparent. And so you're probably looking for it. And they're like, no, it's not. And I'm like, what? They're like, it's winning Emmys, but no one's watching. I'm like, really? What are they watching? He said, Bosh that's blowing the doors off. That's what's keeping the lights on here is Bosch. And I'm like, Bosch could be on NBC. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? And it's like, no, no Bosch is, you know, our big hit. And I'm like, okay, wow. Okay. There you go. There you go.
7: Well, I'll still, I'll still watch Titus Welliver any day of the week. Sorry. So like, like, like I get it. Why? Like, because he, but he's so compelling. And I think Bosch doesn't last without Titus Welliver. I, I think, you know, that's the, they, they had a lucky confluence there with that one.
0: And he was on Grimm. He was—he played a, uh, a like a, a, a classic character. He, I think he was only on once, but he was a—he, uh, he, yeah, he was a, a a big character. Yeah, he's great.
6: All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back after these brief messages.
1: Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate, and they just have too many levers and buttons?
0: There's got to be a better way.
1: Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun.
2: I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image? Thanks, Good
1: Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain
0: is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by.
7: Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin
4: Batchelder.
5: I'm Wendy Hemprock.
4: The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television.
5: Welcome everyone to a special supernatural focus bonus. Hello everyone,
4: show. and welcome to the Fox, a family of podcasts
1: for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday B Movie Reel.
5: Hi everyone, welcome to the study welcome group. To the
1: top genre characters of all time countdown. And
5: tonight we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones season three.
6: Find us at sci fi tvcom New on digital, Pierce Brosnan leads a star-studded cast in the action-packed high-stakes heist thriller The Misfits. Also starring Nick Cannon, Tim Roth, and Jamie Chung, a band of modern-day Robin Hoods, recruit a renowned thief to help them pull off the heist of the century. (laughs) Hold on tight for the thrill ride of the summer. Buy or rent The Misfits now on digital and on demand. Rated R from Paramount Pictures.
5: This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. One day they'll tell a story, and some will say it was just a fairy tale,
2: about a human who came from the stars and changed our world.
3: Screen.
4: where am i what is this place get them out
2: and get him clean
3: brutality is law rise when your master the powerful rule by fear next you'll be telling us these beasts have a soul <laughs> is there a soul in there
5: it's disgusting
3: the way we treat humans How the hell did they get like this? What other way would they be? If they see you on the street, they kill you on sight you stay here, you're dead Trevor, are you from? United States Air Force, I'm going back but Some
4: humans have escaped Is there another way out of the city? I can show you the way
3: They travel with a Declare martial law we underestimate this human. How the are they? The story is spreading through the villages. They all want to see this human who defies the apes. Full division, full battle, please. It's over. There's no help coming.
2: You came. Stand the call to Mars.
3: Get me the spaceman.
6: We are back and we are talking about Planet of the Apes and we started to talk a little bit about the Tim Burton version of Planet of the Apes and I just wanted to say that before Burton took a swing at it, I know that there were a few other screenwriters out there like I've read the Sam Hamm had a draft of it, Terry Hayes had a draft of it, I want to say Adam, oh and I always screw up uh, which Adam it is if it's Resnick, but there was another script that I Just found. Thank you to the uh, Planet of the Apes archives. The writer was Adam Rifkin,
5: not Resnick. The first revision was dated December 21st, 1988.
6: They were working on these versions of Planet of the Apes, and... Each one of them was hamstrung by the idea of we have to have a twist ending and it almost always has to be the Statue of Liberty. And they would get to like the time travel or to the Statue of Liberty in some of the most insane ways. Like this whole thing of like, oh, well, if we tap into the mitochondrial DNA, we can actually travel back to the past. And there's uh, a problem with our women where they're not reproducing and we need to go back to where that. Uh, original mutation occurred and of course it was something to do with the apes and it becomes like this whole planet of the apes thing and they are awful and i thought that those would be the pinnacle of awfulness or i suppose the the lowest points of awfulness and then the the burton movie came out and i was stunned at just how bad it could be i was so excited for the burton movie
7: and Rick Baker, like I was like, bring it on. Like I want to see, I want to see Tim Burton handle this big art direction thing for this and really make this cohesive ape world to do all this stuff. And Rick Baker, and I'm thinking, like, yes. And it's funny because those are the things that work. I think it's beautiful. I think, I think that the the art direction movie is great. I think the cohesive ape society is great. And the makeup is, is like, it's before now we have, you know, the motion capture it's perfect it's great and the movie sucks it is like it is so disappointing all the way through i don't think mark Wahlberg can carry that kind of movie i i think there are movies he can carry and i don't think that's one of them and i think that's part of it um and you and you think about earlier planning up starting with charlton Heston. i mean he is he is a great actor And even when he is limited himself to just screaming and yelling and running around or, or, you know, kind of emoting these really heavy lines, he can do that. And he's also got voice command because he's classically trained, so he can do lines like that and they sound good. And Wahlberg's just a wall. What?
0: No! His ability to act with an animal that has speech uh, really, I think, came together in Ted. Oh, yeah. Which is... Fantastic for Wahlberg and he was great in that. So maybe not the apes, but the teddy bears, absolutely.
7: That's funny. That is. And that is and it works there. But I, I don't think he works in this. So it's also early in his career. And I and I think he has become a better actor as he has gone along too. And I certainly don't think he's he's ready for this role.
6: Well, it's the weird film that actually offends me. Literally offends me. Because, you know, I'm talking about the race relationships and just how crucial they are to the original Planet of the Apes. And then you get to Burton's remake, and you've got Paul Giamatti saying, can't we all just get along as a laugh line? And I'm like, hello, the Rodney King line. And then you've got, you know, there are racial stereotypes one of those stereotypes about black people is that they can't swim so as they cross the water and then all the gorillas show up and they're just like ah we can't do it you know it's like they are stopped by water the apes cannot cross water i'm like are they vampires no they're apes and it's this weird racial stereotype going on here and then again with the miscegenation i find helena bonham carter much more interesting than Estrella Warren. Estrella Warren, who's got this perfect hair and makeup through the entire thing, even though she's this native woman. She is a complete blank slate. There's just nothing behind her eyes. She's the perfect Nova, I suppose. What? No! But she can talk. I think all the humans can talk. Oddly enough, I think almost all, if not all of the humans that are on the planet, which I guess are... The descendants of the people that were on the ship, so again, inbreeding possibly. But they none of them are African-American, if memory serves. It's all white people that survive and that become the humans that are on the planet. I think the most racially diverse is Eric Vardy, who almost always plays uh, Middle Eastern people. But yeah, and then you've got uh, the only black and Asian people that are in the cast are playing gorillas and then it's almost all white people playing orangutans and chimpanzees. Like I said, it offended me. It really made my skin crawl because of just how racially insensitive I found it.
7: And for for a franchise, and especially for the early film that was really, you know, serious about tackling these issues, Burton doesn't take those issues seriously and for me, it's the end of Burton. I've never been interested that interested in a Burton film after. I know Frank and Weenie's after that and that's that's fun to watch and all. But
6: like Big Fish was good, but that's the last one for me.
7: Sleepy Hollow was the last one that I was like really interested in and I really like a lot in it. I don't think it's a great film, but I really like a lot in it. And it's it's really fun to watch still. You know, I mean, Edward is his masterpiece. And then it's, you know, don't think anything.
6: Well, and it's like almost every movie that he's made since then has been a remake. It's like Big Eyes and Big Fish were like the only one. Well, that's a weird coincidence. I didn't realize that they're the big movies, but they're the most original properties that he has. And then everything else is like Dark Shadows, Dumbo, just all of these remakes that he's doing.
0: My overwhelming assumption, I would almost say a moral certitude, is that the assumption was that this was going to be the next big title franchise helmed Batman and now Planet of the Apes. And he was going to be, you know, they absolutely expected two or three or more of these, depending on how well it went. And with Tim Burton at the helm and just a fire hose of cash for everyone involved. And uh, it didn't happen. And it was and it was the most puzzling ending. I mean again, it was so clearly fumbled the the on the on the one yard line.
7: And I, I can remember that. Well, for people that know the book, it was like, oh, I get it. Like quickly, because he's on another planet and now he's coming back to Earth. And now this is what Earth has developed into. It makes perfect under it, It's perfect understandable if you understand the book. But it makes no sense if you watched
6: all these Planet of the age films. But why is it Tim Roth's face on the Lincoln Memorial? Like, is did it? Tim Roth? Yeah, it's that. totally his face. Like, I don't think I realized that. All apes look alike to me. <laughs> I've never met an ape I didn't like. Yeah, it's it's totally his face. And so, like, I was watching this. YouTube video, which you know, source of all knowledge, right? And it's one of these like, oh well, because Taylor went forward in time, then somebody on the Planet of the Apes went back in time, and that's why it stayed face on the Lincoln Memorial. And I'm just like, ah, I, I'm not buying well, that, it. I'm- yeah, that doesn't work at all for me.
0: <laughs> and the, and the mistake, and this is an old tirade of mine. I'll be doing this on my deathbed. But the notion that the most valuable aspect of this is the twist ending. It's the siren call that leads men to their doom. You don't need that. There is so much rich thematic material that you don't need to, the top, the topper, you know, it's like, it's like M. Night Shyamalan. It's like Sixth Sense was great, but it's okay. You don't need to do it with the village and with the thing and the other and the next. And it's just. That's not what made it a great movie. That was not even in the first 15 drafts of the movie. That was a late addition to the movie. Very late. And the movie works without it. You would be absolutely as moved by The Sixth Sense, and it would be absolutely as much a classic movie without the twist ending, just by being this heart-rending story of this relationship and life and death. And that's great. And that should be okay. And, but that's not how studios think. They're like, nah, the candy, we got to break the piñata at the end and all the candy's got, you know, it's like, really, do we? Because that happens rarely and it's great when it does, but don't, don't, don't put all your money on that number. It's just not going to pay off. And, and in that case it didn't. And you'll notice the last, the, in the modern era, the last three, eight movies, they don't have twist endings.
6: Well they're so smart that they move them to San Francisco so they don't even worry about any of the things any of the any of the states that actually have like <laughs> east coast yeah, icons yeah. Well, <laughs> you know because California has no culture the, all the cultures on the east coast
0: right so they immediately the
1: golden gate bridge
0: what we're still here the golden yeah, Ape bridge <laughs> <laughs> ape Coit tower what and in L.A., there's like the Capitol building, but it's in the shape of an ape! You know, no, you don't need it. No, it's okay. Those, the the are, you know, they, they, they work.
6: I wasn't sure about the reboot franchise with Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I will completely admit that I thought it was a little bit of a misfire. I only really liked it in the last, say, 10 minutes when people started dying. I was like, oh, Okay, we're doing something interesting here. I was okay with like the Alzheimer's and John Lithgow, and I was okay with uh, James Franco, and I-, I love Tyler Labine. I love that guy. So I Wait, was. Wait, no, who is he? Which one is he? Tyler Labine. He's a kind of a heavy guy. He usually has a beard and a mustache. He was Franco's friend. Yeah, Franco's
7: friend. And the, and the okay, yeah.
6: Who gets spit on, and then yeah, right, and then he contracts the whole thing. I was like. All right, I'm okay with this, but the the stuff that takes place with uh, Draco Malfoy, I'm just like, oh my God, it was so I tough to mean,
1: watch that.
7: I love it. I love every moment of that movie. That, that movie hit me like, oh my God, you got everything right. And surprising because I was a little leery because they were like, oh, you're going to go back to like conquest, like even like pre-conquest. And is that like, I was surprised that they were going to like try to do a chronological move for it. And everything works in it. I I I, I, I thought the the, the Draco's name, Tom, what's his name? Um Tom Riddle. I think it was really good. Is it Felton? Is it Tom Felton? Um but I thought he was really good and but I uh, um and and Brian Cox, who I love. Um he could do any small role and I love watching him to 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 reboot a franchise and say we're gonna start from the beginning. I thought it was a little patronizing, like we want to make sure everybody understands this, like the way it develops, kind of thing first. But everything worked in it, and 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 Andy Circus and Caesar. It's just maybe ten years from now we're going to look back on these movies and say, like, oh, look how awful that CGI. Looked. But I don't know. I'm I so buy into it, and I'm so moved, and it looks so real.
0: We're moved by the original one in 1968, and it's not because the makeup was so great. It's because the performances hold up and the, the underlying material and the story and the relationships and the philosophical stances. I mean, you, you know who Zira is. You know who Cornelius is. You know who Zaius is. It's like, I get it. I get it. I get it. We're dealing. It's like we're watching fucking C-SPAN. I know these people. They're just, they just have a big proboscis.
7: But those makeups were extraordinary for their time. For their People time. were like blown away by that. My kids were not. When my kids watched it, they were like, that was the one thing they didn't like. They were like, yeah, but the, like those masks. And I was like, what do you mean masks? That was like this state of the art prosthetics. And that was the one thing they thought was dumb. And I was like, are you kidding me? That was the thing I
0: loved as a kid. We grew up in the era of you love like, like when we were in high school, uh, I'm, I'm talking to Ed now. Like you could go to a movie and then come out afterwards and be walking down the street and going, yeah, that kind of sucked. The special effects sucked, man. You know, that's not a thing anymore. It really isn't. It's like if anything has reached state of the art in the last 20 years, it's the production of film. There are no movies that feel like that was cheap. You know, there really aren't. That's never a complaint. It's it's like the they they produce the living shit out of the shittiest movies you could imagine, but they are produced at the highest level. So now it's just acting, directing, writing. You know, that's the only thing you can really complain about. And and that's that's the world we're in now. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we're gonna reach some other weird level of participating holographically in movies. And it's like, oh, that's a stupid two dimensional movie. I like it when I can talk to Caesar.
7: The weird thing about Planet of the Apes is as as revolutionary as, as Chambers makeup was and how it works so well. And they even gave him a special Oscar for it the same year, 2001 Space Odyssey, which you can still watch today. And it's like, that's completely realist. Like everything looks perfect. And I did read in one of the apes things that like Kubrick was a little annoyed. What do
0: you mean he got the award? Did you see my film? If you're going to give a special award for special effects. There's another movie that I, when I watch it now, I'm like, I'm like, I don't know how the, A, I don't know how they did it. B, it totally works for me. Is John Carpenter's the thing?
6: Well, cause it's so much practical effects. that um,
0: Rick Botan. Yeah. Oh yeah. Rob. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm like, I don't, I still, 40 years later, I don't know how they did it and it hasn't aged a minute and it still God, totally it's works. I mean, and look, you're looking at a guy, there's no There's no movie I might love more than, you know, American Werewolf in London and they did amazing shit, but there's still some shots in there where I'm like, okay, ah, okay, it's a little, uh. I mean, they were taking bold steps and I give them all props and I'm not shitting on that movie at all. But the thing I mean, I'm like, because it never got done it. It's like, where are the, you know, you know, where are those effects in another movie? They're just, kind
6: of. The one thing I've always wanted to see is I've wanted to see these new apes movies, but without the special effects, I want to see like a whole hour and a half of like Andy circus with like those little, you know, like, uh, stilts for his front arm so that it can walk that way. <laughs> and I just, I want to see all I've of
0: it. it. Really? It exists. I have seen it. I, because, because of my friendship with Matt, I was able, I read his early, I read his first drafts and all of his drafts as he was working on it and discussed with him what he was doing. He was, he would, he would call up. He, he needed a lot of advice from me. I did, you know, I I told him what to do. You were his Charlton Heston. You know, you were his. (laughs) Wouldn't have gotten made if I had not given him this I'll never forget when script. Matt called me and I said, you know what, how about this? He would call in like, you know, his, you know, group of, you know, buddies and say, okay, watch this early cut. And, and then he would explain, it's going to be confusing because some of it we've already rendered. It'll look very much like it's going to look in the final film. Other sequences are going to look ridiculous. It's like people crawling around against a green screen with weird things and and, and the crutches and all that. I want to see that. It's so, it's so weird, but what's weird about it is how, is how it like, you just, you fill in for it. It, it, You don't do, you're not watching and then you don't go. You're just like, no, you're just like watching. Then you continue watching. I've, I've had that experience and it's every bit as wonderful as you hoped for.
7: Richard, can I ask, I don't know if this is asking too much personal information, but because we know so much about how the development of the script went for Planet of the Apes and Serling, like, what, like 60 drafts or something, and then handing off Michael Wilson. What was, can you talk about what Matt's process, Matt Reeves' process was like in developing
0: this? I can tell you that, now. the one thing I don't know is why we, I'm not remembering the name of the man who directed the first one, or who wrote and directed the first one.
6: Rupert Wyatt, and it was written by Rick Jaffa
0: and Amanda Silver. Right, who are great. And I loved that first movie, too. And and that's right. And yeah. and then so they did the first one, and then Matt did the next two. So I don't know. I don't know why it switched, or why Matt didn't do the first one, or why those people didn't do the the next two, or what happened. But but there was a there was a shift, and it's a palpable shift. I mean, it's a shift in tone. They're they're very the first one is different than the next two, and that di- and the yeah. and the difference is Matt and the way he approaches film. But when he came on, it was pretty scary it was like the first thing they said to him was like this movie will be released on this day two years from now now any ideas cuz that's how they do movies now it's like it's like everything is reverse engineered from we have a date we need for stockholders to know that we've got a tentpole coming out in the summer of 20 whatever and so he was and he was and and so that for that first one that he did which was the second one in the series he was especially under the gun time wise but they had also already like figured out a lot of how to do the special effects so what they really needed to know was and and he and he writes the films and he often writes them with people, but knowing that and having written a film with Matt, I know exactly what this process is. And what the process is, is you don't write page four until page three is perfect. You, there's no such thing as, ah, okay, we'll just we'll, we'll, we'll fuck through that scene. We'll figure it out. Let's just blast out a draft in two weeks and we'll go back and clean it up. This is a process that takes months and months, sometimes years, where he's like, well, I'm, I'm still right around page 65. Like we haven't quite figured that out yet. So we got to, nothing's moving forward till we get 60 to 70 figured out. And then we can, I mean, I've got an outline, I've got an idea, but you know, and he directs the movie on the page. And if you read a script of his, then you have seen the movie. I have seen Batman because I read the Batman script. So it's like, that's it. That is it. And the way he writes, you are seeing it. It's very point of view centered. So that you are in the point of view of the main character and you are experiencing it through them and you see it. And I obviously I've known Matt for 38 years and I, you know, we went to film school and he's the guy, you know, the joke about picking the smartest kid in the room to be your lab partner in your science class. So so that was my experience with Matt and. I never got picked.
7: You and you, you picked Matt. Like you were like, y'all pick that guy.
0: Well, Matt and I were friends, and we and we were just like we, you know, we goofed around, and we and our sense of humor and 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 all that. But he was dramatically more skilled than everybody else in film school. And 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 not for any other reason that he was just better than we were. And we were all like, wait, wait, which end of the camera are we shooting through? And he was creating these little gems, like literally his first project. He would go to the music school and find someone to score his, his Super 8 movies that he would bring into the very first thing. And everyone's just like, oh, can I just... <laughs> How, how tall is this building? Because I need to jump off of it because none of us are going to work and Matt's going to be a fucking superstar. And, oh, and, I'll tell, and I'll just tell one more quick story about film school. There was another guy in film school who was a real, a real weirdo. And he came into our film school like halfway through the first year. And we were making these short films and he made this film called The Yellow Bandit. And it's like, what? And so, and we're watching this thing and it's, and there's this guy and he's going to bed and he falls asleep and then a guy breaks into the house and he's looking at the camera and he's going, ha, ha, ha. and it's like, what the fuck is this? And he goes and he gets a pan and he goes into the kitchen. He fills the pan with water and then he puts it over and he puts the guy's hand in the water and then you go to the sheet and then, and then a stain starts spreading on the sheet. Cause he's put the guy's hand in a pan of warm water. And now the guy's peeing his bed and the yellow band is laughing and the guy runs away. And we're all like, what the fuck is this? Judd Apatow.
7: And little did you know, he would be successful. Right. This guy is
0: going <laughs> precisely nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so you know you know and then meanwhile and then, and then matt were like you know so so it's like okay well you know there, there's surprises in the world for everyone and then my wife susan you know the three of us all you know met that same year 1984 at usc so then of course matt goes i know we do under siege too well we do dark territory which became under siege Two. but anyway working with matt that's how he writes so this is all coming back to planet of the apes and He needs to understand how he's going to achieve every single shot as he's writing it. Nothing is left to, okay, here's the script, but once we're on set, it's all different. No, once we're on set, it is simply executing what he has put on the page, and that's it. So once he's got that script and it's where he wants it to be, it does not change.
7: That's interesting. That's a safe way to make a film too. That sounds almost sounds like Hitchcock. I'm going to limit everything so no one can interfere with how this is going to progress. Right.
0: Yeah,
6: one to one shooting ratio. Don't come in and try to fuck around with my edit.
0: When you're doing a movie like this, where so much is kind of like you don't want someone fucking around. Like, oh, we don't need that sequence. We're ch- hey, I decided this morning we're changing the sequence. It's like no, we got to. This is it's and and then it is literally like chiseling something out of marble. It is incredibly difficult. The editing process is almost impossible because you don't know what you're cutting. And I remember him talking about that and just saying, it's really hard because the studio wants a cut, but the effects aren't done. And I'm cutting together footage and I, I don't really, I don't really know what I'm cutting. Like I think I do. And 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 for a guy who has planned every frame, he's like, it's very disconcerting. I'm, I'm setting out on a on a tightrope, and I don't have, you know, I'm not balanced. But they get to that point, and they're and they're very reassured by him having a plan, and then, of course, working with. I think did Stan Solfus cut the second or third one, or both? Perhaps. Um, Stan is a guy he's worked with for years. I know Stan. I've worked with Stan in uh, on some TV stuff. Um, but but going, you know, every step of the way, and working with Andy. And Andy is a big part of those movies and became a bigger sort of creative voice because that was what drew Matt in being such a fan from his childhood and watching all these things. He was like, yes, I love all the action. I love all that stuff, but I'm just totally entranced by these relationships and, and, and those themes and as is Andy circus. And so the two of them talked a lot about Caesar and, who Caesar is as a man and a father and a husband and all that plays out in those two films. That's how he approached it. I know that. And, and having read those two scripts and then seeing them was like, okay, yeah, this was the plan. And then of course the third one being sort of apocalypse now meets concentration camp movies.
7: It was Selfis, office uh, editor on both of those. But um, uh, what, what, what I was saying earlier about uh, R- R- rise and how much I really like rise I still understood Rise as almost like a prequel, and I and I felt like you're making. That's what I talk about making the chronological. Order. Like they almost made a prequel for the two films that I really wanted, and and they were the then they were the next two, the the, the Dawn and War, which I thought really do everything and go in ways about developing these ideas that clearly Tim Burton thought were just like funny lines.
0: Matt's not a guy to sort of stand at arm's distance from the material and to, and sometimes that's a very useful thing. In some movies you want that. It's just locking in the point of view of every scene. So, you know, you know who you're, you're in and whose whose mind you're in in every single shot of every single film and upcoming films will be the same way so you're you're sort of very much at ground level which brings which is funny because it brings sort of a, a, a visceral feeling to the movie that i think the original planet of the apes had but it does not have the arm's distance sort of social commentary where you're sort of like ah oh, i see what's happening here you see it but you're with matt's films i feel like you're, you're feeling it
7: more. You are, and, and it's that, and it's all those, and just as Planet of the Apes was hitting, and, and the others in the franchise were hitting contemporary, you know, cultural, you know, political ideas, we're, we're so in tune with, you know, ecological, you know, concerns that we all have now, and dealing with animals, and things that weren't as important in those early days, but I wonder if it was at, at the expense of, because clearly we still have these deep-seated, you know, racial problems in our society, and I, I did feel like that that was something that got lost in in these two, even though there are plenty in there that is still, you know, great to latch onto and and is relevant to us. I don't think I saw the racial stuff as, in, in those as well. It's it's really not there, and I only say that too in in after watching these other ones and then look at these. Like I never thought that watching these.
6: So I thought they were complete and as they are. Well, you don't have that strata of the orangutans, the chimpanzees, and the gorillas, and the gorillas being you know the the hired hands, and then the chimpanzees being more the scientists, and then really it's the orangutans who are running everything. You just pretty much have like the one orangutan, uh, Maurice, which is a great name. He's the best, one of the best characters in it because he's so gentle and so nice. I mean, and then you've got a couple gorilla enforcers, but you really don't get that strata that you had before.
0: I think the movies are political, but they're not overtly political in that way. I think you're right. Because of just sort of the story of the first one, the way the sort of the apes happen, there's a little less talk of evolution you know, like like you, you you, it's that's a couple of degrees away is arguments of evolution. And and, and uh, but but what you do have is who deserves this real estate. And you do have the feeling that the apes are just like, would you just let us go into the woods and fucking live our lives? And men are like, nope, no, we're not not going to happen so so clearly it feels political but not overtly racial in that way
7: the humans are the bad people now there are some humans who aren't as bad kind of thing but it's like the humans are bad and the animal and all the prime all the other primates because we're primates too all the other primates are good except for koba but but he's very complicated like of course he's going to be that way because of the way he was treated kind of thing
0: Talk, I mean, talk about shakespearean coba is the you know is he's like the uh, iago or richard and he's the richard III. The
7: third. like i'm gonna root for you anyway even though i know you're gonna like do all this awful stuff
0: coba's not wrong you know we we all get where coba's coming from well he's
7: wrong in the end he is wrong, like he's wrong in what he does but you understand like how he got there yeah
0: then you have the apes that have that have gone over and are working for the humans. And they're basically the, you know, the traitors. Oh, okay. So what, what, what do we, is, you know, like, like I, oh, there's almost a racial angle there. It's like, like, if you're, if you're coming at it from a certain angle, it's like, Oh, okay. So now they're defending the other race instead of the ape race. But it's like, okay, I don't know how I feel. What am I supposed to feel about that?
7: Well, the, these, these new films aren't talking about race. They're talking about species and that's the issue you know now and it's like for for a franchise that begins with it's like the hero having to fight these apes and through all these movies to now when it's rebooted it's the apes who are the good guys what a change in our society and then because that has to happen before you can make the franchise and for it to be successful that's where we're at
0: and yet, still talking about the same themes. Still talking about the inherent uh, uh, aspect of man that is greedy and and bloodthirsty and and controlling. And I mean, it's like the same. It's the same themes. It's just okay. Let's just take them to their logical conclusion and really invert it and really do that story now.
6: Now, does war end? Hopefully, yeah. I mean, it ends with Caesar dying, but the apes are in a new homeland.
7: We think they're going to have their new society, but we don't think they're going to do the same things the humans have done.
6: That's what we're hoping. Yeah.
0: There's no ironic moment where, you know, a child, you know, the, the, you know, Lucius is like picking up a gun going (laughs) the end of battle.
7: And even in the end of battle where it's like the little ape and human child are fighting, you know, at the very end. And like, you don't get that sense at the end that it's not that cynical apocalypse is going to happen. People
0: and it's not Twilight Zone. And again, yeah, it's not arm's distance. Yeah, cynicism, ironic. Oh, but oh no. It's just, because again, Matt's thing was, I just want to tell the story of Caesar and his family. And, and we'll take it through the, the last two movies. And, and we, will, we will connect to him and his wishes. And, and again, sort of keep it kind of ground level.
7: The apes will get it right. Humans screwed it up. Right. (laughs) The other primates will get it right.
6: It was funny because I rewatched Dawn yesterday and I kind of remember Jason Clark in it. I didn't remember Felicity. uh, (laughs) What's her name? No, she was from Felicity. Kerry Russell. I didn't remember Gary Oldman being in the movie. Really? I I I never (laughs) forgot Gary Oldman's in it. He's
7: great in it. And in a role where it's like
6: it's thankless
7: i always expect gary Ullman to take over a film and he clearly doesn't take over this film um it's uh it's still what's his name uh from brotherhood the, the actor i mean it still is his film for the humans um
6: what's his name the jason Thank clark you. Uh, it's still his film yeah. for the humans gary Ullman's well he's gary Ullman. but then you get to war and it's like my god woody harrelson oh. what a role. He is so good at He's not it.
7: supposed to be that good. Like, I like Woody Harrelson. But then, like, he does and I think, like, wow. Like, you're not supposed to be this good an actor. You're supposed to be, like, good, but still in a funny kind of zombie land kind of way. And he's really, really tremendously
6: good in this. I thought War was so smart. And, like, you get those stupid nods in other movies. Like, I really feel like the Burton... Planet of the Apes was like uh, at least 25% of it was fan service. So, like, Charlton Heston with the gun in his cold, dead hands, all this kind of garbage that you've got. And in here, you've got, like, you know, the nameplate of the Chevy Nova, because the, here's Nova here. And we've got, you know, the son is named Cornelius. And, like I said before, the orangutan is named Maurice, like Maurice Evans. And then to bring back, like, the scarecrows that we had in the first movie, but then to actually have apes on these scarecrows and their torture devices. And then in 2017, to have this egomaniac Woody Harrelson character be obsessed with building a wall, I was like, wow, okay. (laughs) I realized the script was written before 2017, but between that and there's another line where Harrelson is like, you will not replace us, and I'm just like, oh, okay, just like those idiots with the tiki torches were chanting down in uh, wherever Charlottesville a few years ago, you will not replace us. I'm like, okay, I guess there is something going on here.
7: So there are some contemporary residences that I'm not, I wasn't really thinking about that are are really
6: there, yeah. And the doll. And does the doll carry the disease? Because it's the Like, the doll, the little girl, Nova, has the doll, and then Harrelson finds it, and then Harrelson ends up getting that disease. And I thought that was very smart, that he's saying, you know, we all carry that simian disease, and it manifests in different ways. And then that people are starting to go to that next level by losing their ability to speak. I was like, oh, that's... that's interesting way to get around that whole thing and how the humans forget how to speak because that's one of the things we didn't bring up when we go all the way back to the bull novel is that you get like you were talking about how a lot of the seeds for escape and conquest are planted in the bull novel it's kind of weird because it's Zira doing brain surgery on these people these humans that can't speak but then they're able to recall like almost like racial memories yeah. through the brain surgery. A Jungian philosophy thing where you could have yeah. racial
7: memory or, you know, yeah,
6: it's really kind of crazy, which fits with that, like mitochondrial DNA thing that I think I can't remember. If it was Sam Ham or, or Terry Hayes were doing and I was like, okay, that's kind of there, but it was just kind of hackneyed the way that they handled it. But I thought that War was really smart with the way that they handled a lot of things. I I thought that adding a little bit of the comic relief with the Steve Zahn character was actually pretty smart mm-hmm. with the way that they handled it.
0: And in looking back over all of these, and then sort of asking the obvious question, which is, okay, so, well, either in 10 years, will there be more movies, or is Netflix going to make some big announcement that they're doing a TV show, or like what... What is the future of the franchise? The one thing that sort of speaks to the idea that it might continue is that the apes are so engaging. From the very first movie to the very last one, the apes, whether they're the good guys, the bad guys, or both, those characters have been rendered so engagingly. You love them. I mean, you love Caesar. Even when they're killing people, you're like... I know, but
7: I... Well, those uh, people deserve uh, it anyway. Yeah. Like, it's like, I mean, they're like, you know, they're they're Nazis, they're Nottingham castle guards. They're like, yeah, it's like, mow them down.
6: Yeah, even when Koba takes that uh, machine gun and Dawn and then starts machine gunning those guys, I was like, wow, okay, that's pretty cool.
0: That was the... when they, It's just that circular shot that just goes around and around. I mean, I remember, like, in that moment being like, oh, okay, we're reaching, like... This is, this is a, a new level of aesthetics. Jesus Christ.
7: And that's fascinating because when, 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 the, when Planet when the Apes, when they rebooted it for TV, it's like, well, let's have these two astronauts come and everybody will speak. But, and that's who the show is about. And, of course, it's about apes. But now if they go to continue this franchise in another way… It's clearly going to be about the apes because that's what I want to see. And I'm sure that's what everybody wants to see. We want to see this ape civilization, a TV series about like, like I would love to see that.
0: You kind of don't want to see apes fighting other apes because then it's zero sum
7: and ape shall not kill ape. That's the, come on, that's battle. That's ape shall not kill ape.
0: Go on two legs, not on, Oh, that's something else. Okay. Um, Then how do you bring in a sort of long form storytelling, of a, another human encounter that is distinct enough from the last two movies that it isn't just a retread, but is novel enough. I mean, do you go, again, do you go way into the future? You know, because all the recent ones are, uh, you know, the last three are kind of now. I mean, it's all now or just a couple of years in the future. It's not the year 2697 or whatever. So I don't know.
7: That would be the most daring thing is like, do you even need humans? Like, I mean, I, I can't imagine anybody greenlighting that. But, well, but who do you is, fight? Who do
0: the apes fight then?
7: You that know? would be daring to, like, do, let's do a show about ape civilization about
0: eight. Oh, in other words, so then it's just like Modern Family. Like, it would be weird. <laughs>
6: <laughs> yes, and then we could have, a, yeah, we could have a sitcom. Yeah, there you go. I love how silent Dawn and War are. like. So many sequences are all being done with sign language. I just absolutely love that. And I, I made the big mistake yesterday when I was re-watching Dawn. I didn't have the subtitles on, and I'm just like, am I supposed to know what they're talking about? I,
5: have
7: watched, <laughs> it. I watched it once without that, and, and didn't realize, and then watched it again, and then I told my, uh, my son-in-law that, and he was like, there's subtitles. Like, I guess he just downloaded it somewhere and like, he didn't even know. And, but it is fascinating that you literally can watch it without the subtitles and get something out of it. That's how good that motion capture and performances are that you can watch it without knowing what they're saying. And people have done
6: that. I really appreciate that. They make it that quiet because I remember watching war of the planet of the apes in the theater. And there were several times where, everybody was so quiet watching it and everybody on screen was so quiet because they were just communicating with their hands and i'm just like wow this is kind of spooky but i like it not as quiet as like watching the quiet place but it was definitely very quiet of an experience and then it gets super loud during the war parts but those other parts are so nice and quiet i was trying to get eric green to talk to me i finally tracked down his contact information yesterday and i was like this episode has to come out Wednesday, so there's no way I'm going to be able to interview this guy. So I didn't even bother. But I, I tried some other folks, and I just never got anywhere with, with with interviews. I don't know if you guys ever had a chance to read Eric Green's book, but it's really good. It's Which the one was race.
1: That? Oh, it's I read some of it, but I didn't read all of it. Yeah, yeah. it's really good. What,
6: what's, really it good
7: what's it called? What's it called? Yeah, it's *Planet of the Apes* as American myth, race, politics, and popular culture. Eric Green, Green with an E, really good.
0: Okay, cool. Okay, good. So listeners can uh, can go track that down um, on Wesleyan uh,
7: Press. This is something that has gone through like three, four different reboots, in a sense. You know, like the original the, the film series, then a TV show, then a cartoon. Well, and if you consider comic all the books, comic books there's done, so, so many different comic book stories and all in that. I, I have the Conspiracy of the Planet of the Apes over here. It was a story of Landon and his old backstory and really well wow. written by Andrew uh, Gaska. A really, really good book, uh, well illustrated in this edition, too, that came out from uh, uh, Archaea Press. But a great backstory for Landon and that character, who I think is like a, you know, I know Heston makes make fun of him in the first, but he's kind of a jerk anyway. Like, I don't think much of him, but really interesting thing. And and then the new and the well, Burton's dead end. It's like just a weird little thing. But then the new franchise and clearly, yes, there will be something else. Yeah, and what will it be? Like I I know it's not going to be just about the apes or a sitcom like like a but what will will it be? A reboot? Do, what what do you guys think is going to be the next move for this franchise cuz something has to come. Well, cuz it makes money first of all.
0: Yeah, they were well regarded, they were hits and they were critically well received. So my guess my personal guess is that these things tend to continue at this moment on uh, premium streaming cable, I I don't know what the numbers are and I don't know what the, you know, what the plans are for this stuff. But I mean, if there's, if there's star Wars stories being told on cable, but, but I always think about that. It's like, well, you've got star Wars, you've got star Trek, you've got the, the, the Marvel and DC, you've got James Bond, what are the big franchises? And this is one of them that may not have been as exploited in terms of numbers, but in terms of kind of success, I mean, the way we've been talking about it, there's really only one major misfire, and it's the Tim Burton. And, I mean, Star Wars doesn't even have that, <laughs> that that you know, uh, a high degree of confidence in terms of telling these stories and having them turn out good. And Star Trek doesn't. You know, James Bond doesn't. You, know, you can argue those things all day, and that's the fun of it. But it's like, it, it, you're right, Ed. I think it's like, it's a no-brainer. This will come back. It's just when. And will it be on the big screen or the small screen?
6: There was also a really good – so yeah, there are tons of comic books, which is fantastic. There was the Marvel Magazine from years ago. At some point, I guess things must have shifted over to DC because I know there was a crossover where one of the Green Lantern rings went to the Planet of the Apes. And so you've got a Green Lantern ape. And then there was also a crossover with Star Trek called the Primate Directive, which I found to be very amusing.
7: I also have Tarzan on the Planet of the Apes that Boom Comics put out. Talk talk about colonial politics like crazy, like Tarzan, the Great White Hope of the Civilization. And like, it's good and weird.
0: Charlton Heston does make that joke. Uh, me, Tarzan, you, Jane. You know, so there you go.
6: And another thing that people will want to pick up is Planet of the Apes visionaries which is based on a version of the script by serling so you get to see more of his take on it and it's pretty great because i was talking about the whole idea of like the crosswalks that are actually monkey bars going across the street you get to see all of that stuff in this comic book which is really kind of cool that they preserve that
7: credit pierre bull for writing a book that could like inspire so much that and it was like why did somebody think of it sooner? Like it was. Like, it seems like so obvious. Like as soon as Darwin comes up with <laughs> their evolution, you think somebody's going to come up with this idea, and nobody does until Bull in in what the sixty four or whatever or whatever it is of the about sixty the whatever the novel's probably I can't remember. It takes that long.
0: And as far as I know, people like I don't know of a lot of people who have read the novel, but you guys, uh, especially you Ed, seem to be kind of recommending it
7: oh yeah it's it's and it's short it's it's a hundred
0: translation is there more than one translation is there an addition as far as i know it's the only
7: trend the the, the, the original translation from the 60s still survives to today that's the only one the american because they're not going to pay another publisher to do it when they can (laughs) still keep publishing the same translation and i don't know i don't I, i i don't read french so i don't know how how and how you know faithful it is but i've never heard any complaints about it and i also do know that bull is as a writer he is a he's a very um succinct simple writer almost hemingway-esque in the way he writes so that kind of lends itself to like it's not going to be a crazy translation if you're you know
0: uh, does the translation read in that same sort of almost hemingway
7: Maybe. I can't remember the name of the translator. Um, okay.
6: Okay. But, Interesting. It moves pretty well, though. It's it's good. Even though the, he keeps calling them monkeys, and every single time he calls them monkeys, I'm just like, monkeys are a different species? Zan Fielding.
7: Zan X-A-N Fielding did the translation for the original Signet. This is like that, likely the movie edition of it. But I, I'm pretty certain the Zan Fielding translation exists across the board. I say that, and, of course, somebody's going to write to you, Mike, and say, like, no, 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 no. There are these translations.
6: I have no idea. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. There is an inexorable force in the cosmos, where time and space converge,
3: where the here and now may be forever, an unavoidable hole moving through space, swallowing everything in its path. Now, man is about to enter.
6: That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Disney's The Black Hole. Until then, I want to thank this week's co hosts Ed and Richard. So, Ed, what's been keeping you busy lately?
7: I've been developing uh programs for the Rosenbach. Still, uh, I, I, I did last year. I did a Sundays with Dracula, which we did twenty-seven straight weeks of talking about live on Zoom, talking about one chapter at a time of Dracula. Then I. I went into Sundays with Frankenstein and we did the whole Frankenstein novel in 15 weeks. You can find all these at Rosenbach.org. All the videos of these shows exist. And next I'm going to be doing Sundays with Jane Eyre. Uh, And that will start in September of 2021. If you're listening to the show in the future, that's when it begins and it will be available at Rosenbach.org starting in September, 2021, where we'll spend 30 weeks Talking about two hours a week, me talking with 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 co-hosts and special guests talking about the great nineteenth-century uh, Gothic Romantic novel *Jane Eyre* by Charlotte Bronte.
6: I'm glad you're completing the horror trilogy there with Frankenstein, Dracula, and Jane Eyre.
7: I we, well, I work at the Rosenbachum and and. and... We don't have any more monster novels, um, so um, we were uh, was famous for having Bram Stoker's notes for Dracula, and that's why I able to do Dracula and plenty of Dracula editions, and then we have Frankenstein and things related to that. Um, at least I thought we could continue with gothic works um uh and you could debate whether or not there is a monster in chain air maybe rochester is the monster it's certainly not bertha in the attic we're far too you know uh um um you know uh, nice today to think that bertha would be the monster but maybe rochester's but that'll be the next thing that i'm doing and uh you can find me online doing all kinds of wonderful stuff like this
6: and richard what's the haps with you
7: sir
0: well, we have just, just completed production on season three of DC Titans. It is the season that went on forever in terms of production because of a COVID and the and quarantine and all the protocols. We managed to get through without, uh, without any major illnesses. Uh, some people got sick but bounced right back. So we were, we were pretty golden up there in Toronto, and we just finished filming last week, and we are going to premiere on August 12th on HBO Max Season 3. You can watch Seasons 1 and 2 on HBO Max, and somebody said you could watch it on TBS also, so I, I, I don't know, but, but check it out and spend July consuming Season 1 and 2, and then August comes along, Season 3, we set down in Gotham, and it's our season in Gotham City.
6: Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to our website, ProjectionBoothPodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
4: Ever hear of Planet of the Apes?
6: Uh,
1: The movie or the planet?
4: The brand-new, multi-million-dollar musical. And you are starring as the human.
1: It's the part I was born to play, baby!
4: Help the humans about to escape.
1: Get your paws off me, you dirty ape!
4: <gasps> he can talk.
3: He can talk. He can talk. He, he can, can talk. talk. He can talk. He can talk. He, he can, can talk. talk. I
2: can sing.
4: Oh, help me, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Oh, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zeus. What's wrong with me? I think you're crazy Want a second opinion? You're also lazy Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas Oh, Dr. Zayas Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas Can I play the piano anymore? Of course you can Well, I couldn't before This
2: play has everything
4: Oh, I love legitimate theater. I hate every ape I
3: see. From chimpanzee to chimpanzee. No, you'll never make a monkey out of me. Oh my god, I was wrong. It was Earth all along. You finally made a monkey. Yes, you finally made a monkey.
2: Yes, you finally.
4: my planet earth 2000 years in the future and my civilization destroyed itself oh nova nova you are what is left of the human race